It's the 13th of March, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today is Room Now Live Day. You can tune in by going to the website RoomNow.live and register and consume the online content half day on Friday, all day Saturday, Sunday morning, 16 hours of CME. You can be there. This week, a number of interesting reports. Let's start with a report about um, TIC2 inhibitors and their potential role in spondylitis. Bob Inman has a very nice report in, I think it's Journal of Clinical Investigation, uh, and it shows that TIC2 inhibition could be the next new big thing for patients with spondyloarthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. He points out in that report that patients who are treated with TNF inhibitors the AS patients, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that they are good at retarding x-ray progression in spondylitis. For that matter, there's not a lot of great evidence that even IL-17 inhibitors will do that. There is some, but it's not consistent. It's not overwhelming. And of course, the problem is it takes a long time to develop x-ray changes. And most of the studies done thus far have been short term. Um, so his investigations were getting at the root of maybe why we could do better um, by having other targets other than TNF and IL-17. And using an animal model, uh, including a knockout model of TIC2, they showed that by inhibiting TIC2, you can block IL-23 and also the production of IL-22 that could not only leads to clinical improvement, but also radiographic benefits in a rodent model. Now, Uh, Again, there's some limitations to that, but I think the main point of the paper was that merely inhibiting IL-17 may not be the right pathway, and you may not be able to do that effectively through IL-23 inhibition, that you can subsequently inhibit IL-17. That um, actually JAK inhibition is much more effective at inhibiting IL-17 than is um, uh, TIC inhibition, for instance. So again, I think this is nice... um, uh, in uh, basic science sort of research that will help maybe guide future therapies. A corona evaluation of their almost 25,000 RA patients shows that 32 patients, 32% of RA patients have Sjogren's syndrome, suggesting that there's an overall incidence of about 0.30 or 30%. It's a little bit, it's either about the same or a little bit below what has been quoted elsewhere. Uh, and we know that secondary Sjogren's is a very prevalent condition in many of the autoimmune diseases. It, you know, Norman Talal once told me that the most common autoimmune disease that rheumatologists treat is Sjogren's because of the large number of primary Sjogren's patients and then an even larger number of secondary Sjogren's patients. And that may well be true. Um, in this particular study, Sjogren's was associated with increasing disease duration, age, being female, being seropositive and having a extreme or high disease activity. Um, such patients were more likely to have more comorbidities and more extra articular manifestations. This report seems to confirm a lot of what's already been known and what is in textbooks. So we are going to talk about seropositivity at Room Now Live. I got a lecture on that talking about the relative value of uh, rheumatoid factor CCP and also some of the newer rheumatoid tests, including anti-carbamylated P antibodies, what's called CAR-P antibodies. An interesting study came across this week uh, comparing 179 RA patients 
21% um, of whom had a history of ILD or evidence of ILD, interstitial lung disease, and the remainder did not. And when they compared the serologic profiles of such patients, they showed that the presence of anti-CAR-P antibodies was associated with a 3.4-fold increased risk of interstitial lung disease. Now, um, we do know that CCP has been associated with chronic lung disease, and in some cases, interstitial lung disease. Uh, it's interesting to note that CAR-P antibodies um, also seems to have the same characteristics. So, uh, something maybe it may be another reason why you might want to do CAR-P antibodies, which are generally not widely available, but are gaining some momentum, at least in research studies. So, there's a large um, study from British Columbia that looked at what happens when you get pregnant with a rheumatic disease. Um, they compared uh, rheumatic disease patients, uh, I think it was like 160 with 180 pregnancies, and these were DMARD uh, or biologic exposed pregnancies, and they compared to 6,000 people, uh, RA patients, not um, uh, actually not RA, but not DMARD exposed patients. They showed that when you look at common DMARDs, Plaquenil, azathioprine, uh, sulfazalazine, when those were used either at the time of conception or during the pregnancy, there was no um, untoward outcomes. There was no uh, problems as far as the birth of those children or small gestational weight children. Um, they did have an interesting um, analysis. And there's, I wouldn't say that they had very strong numbers to make this claim, but nonetheless, they did show first trimester exposure to methotrexate yielded an increased odds of congenital anomalies with an, uh, an adjusted odds ratio of 6.6 .6 with a very wide interval, uh, confidence interval 1.1 to 37.8. Um, again, that would need to be repeated in other studies, maybe better powered studies. You know, most of the studies actually have not shown methotrexate to increase the risk of congenital anomalies when um, uh, uh, patients become pregnant on the drug. This is one that says it is. You should look at the recent guidelines from the uh, American College of Rheumatology. Uh, lead author on that is Lisa Samaritano in the current edition of uh, Arthritis and Rheumatology, and it actually addresses this issue of the safety of methotrexate in and around pregnancy. Um, a very surprising result comes from a UK population-based study basically saying that vaccination with, uh, against seasonal flu influenza does not yield the expected benefits. So this is a very large population-based study. It shows that the people who are most likely to receive the flu vaccine were those who were older and those who had more uh, medical problems. But when they made a lot of corrections, they showed that those who received seasonal influenza vac vaccination, they did not have a substantial or significant reduction in either hospitalizations or mortality, especially amongst the elderly. This basically says we may need to rethink some of our thinking about uh, how we vaccinate, who we vaccinate, and how this best gets done. So there was another study that looked at um, those who were more likely to quit smoking if they had rheumatoid arthritis. So this was an analysis of two different healthcare systems, specifically looking at uh, electronic health record data. Uh, and combined, they had 3,500 plus patients, 500 of whom uh, were smokers, active smokers, Nearly 30% of them had quit smoking um, over the in prior seven and a half years. They found that the people who were more likely to quit were people who were new to the healthcare system 
and also those that were in rural communities as opposed to those who were in uh, more urban areas, and that seropositive patients were less likely to quit. This is kind of distressing because I don't see either of these as being, any of these as being great opportunities for us to seize upon. And we clearly know that our patients who do smoke, who have rheumatoid arthritis, need to quit. So it still means you're going to have to work even harder to bring that um, uh, end uh, to, to reality in your patients who are smokers. Uh, Ron Van Volenhoffen was the lead author in the first study of ustekinumab and SLE. As you remember, that was a highly effective study. They now have reported the one-year results in that trial. In the first six months, patients received either placebo or um, ustekinumab, uh, and, a and it was blinded, and they had 62% SRI4 responses on ustekinumab versus 33% on placebo. Turns out that when you look at the data out to a year, the uh, SRI4, SRI4 responses, the lupus responses, are maintained at over 63% for those who continued on ustekinumab, and those who crossed over from placebo to receive ustekinumab caught up, suggesting, again, this looks like a highly effective therapy. The Korean National Study looked at the um, incidence of RA and what may be causing RA. Is this not timely? Guess what causes RA? Three to, uh, excuse me, six to seven weeks following an active upper respiratory infection with the coronavirus, yeah, the coronavirus, or parainfluenza, or what was called metapneumovirus, was associated with an increased risk of incident RA in a population-based study from Korea. This were, these results were more likely in women and in the elderly. So if we get into a real, you know, sticky wicket with this whole coronavirus, we could be seeing a lot more rheumatoid arthritis. Is it not bad enough? Lastly, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency that oversees the regulatory approval of drugs in the, uh, throughout the European Union, um, has issued its final recommendations regarding tofacitinib. As you remember, back in November, there were the warnings uh, from the EMA based on a safety study done by Pfizer comparing uh, adalimumab to uh, low-dose or high-dose tofacitinib in high-risk RA patients looking to see what the safety of the drug is. Unfortunately, the high-dose tofacitinib, 10 milligram BID, not approved for anything we treat, only approved for uh, ulcerative colitis, that high dose was associated with increased risk of VTE events and cardiovascular death. When they reviewed all the data, they made the following recommendations, which are, I must say, severe and maybe even a bit ridiculous. These recommendations are in the label for this drug, tofacitinib, in the European Union. This has not changed the U.S. label, and these are not what's in the U.S. label. In the U.S. label, for all the JAK inhibitors, is a warning about the risk and that you may not want to use these drugs and people have a prior history of VTE, venous thromboembolic events. However, in the European warning, it says do not use the 10 milligram BID dose. If you must use it, it's with risk. Second, do not use this drug if a patient has a high risk for thromboembolic events, that would include patients with myocardial infarction, CHF, cancer, a history of a clotting disorder. Uh, if that's not enough, people who are on hormone replacement therapy or are taking hormonal contraceptives, people who are immobile, and people who are undergoing major recent surgery, don't give them tofacitinib. Moreover, they have a conditional warning against the use of this drug in people who are older. 
have diabetes, who are obese with a BMI greater than 30, who are smokers and hypertensives. Basically, you can't use it in anybody in, the, in Europe. Again, I think this is going a little bit overboard. I think using good common sense um, in people who have a history or high risk of VTU, as you determine, um, maybe shouldn't go on this drug when they have other options. So patients are doing great on these drugs, uh, and you now find out this information about what to do. You need to have a discussion about the benefits of stopping such, such medicine, what's working, versus the hazards of continuing. Um, it's got to be a one-on-one -on -one decision. That's it for this week on the Room Now podcast. Tune in next week. Tune in next week to hear more about Room Now Live. See you then.